Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome along to The Profile with me, Justin Briley, bringing you another story of a Christian in all kinds of walks of faith and life. And today, it's a great pleasure to be joined by Adrian Plass. Uh, before we get talking to Adrian, let me remind you that The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. And if you'd like to read more interviews with all kinds of people, then do go to our website, premierchristianity.com you can even add slash free sample to that uh, web address and we'll send you a free sample copy of the latest magazine if you request one Uh, well here on the profile it's always a great pleasure to meet people that i've known through the pages of their books and that's the case today with adrian welcome along to the program thank you good to be here it's great to have you um I bumped into you, as I'm sure many, many people will have mm. in the past, through, of course, the secret diary of uh, Adrian Mole. Um, sacred diary. Sacred of diary of Adrian yes. Platt, yes. which was a takeoff <laughs> on, of course, the, it the, was. the Sue Townend. It rode on the back of... And she made a little more money than I did. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, that was... I guess that was the late 80s that was written, was it? Or? It was 87 yeah. it came out. And, and obviously she'd had this phenomenal success. Mm, and, right. um, and then you... I mean, did you very consciously kind of obviously take up her kind of style? No, it it was a suggestion by a man called Andy Butcher, who was the deputy editor of Family Magazine, Mm. which later had many, many many changes of name. But uh, he said, why don't you do a column called The Secret Diary of Adrian Plass? And uh, uh, so that began, and it was hugely successful, to my surprise. Uh, and that that expanded into a book, so that's how it began. And I I had just was just recovering from an illness, so uh, it was an opportunity to vent my spleen <laughs> in a humorous way. Did were you surprised at the success that the the Sacred Diary had? Staggered, mm. absolutely stunned. I remember going to Spring Harvest uh, uh, in those very early days, and they said, "Will you come over and sign some books?" And I I thought, well. I don't want to line myself up for total humiliation. <laughs> but I went, sat at this little table, kept my head down, and hoped I could soon leave. And this hush fell, and I looked up, and they were all holding my book. <laughs> and I signed books for two and a half hours, and I went back to the um, chalet where I was with my wife. And I said, I think something's changed mm. in our lives. I'm not quite sure what it is. I, mean, I think what changed was that you, in that book, obviously a slightly fictional account, but sort mm. of based, I think, in the kind of reality that most people experience Christian life in, which is mm. that it's a bit absurd sometimes and yes. a bit silly, and we're yes. not all these spiritual heroes. No, none, and, of, none of us are spiritual <laughs> heroes. <laughs> and, and I think people no. just resonate with that because that's yeah. the reality of what most people experience. Yeah. It is true. We, we have a corporate expression of, of, of faith <laughs> which sounds fairly uh, ordered and shape, well-shaped. But I'm, I remember being at um, Lee Abbey recently and saying to a group of people, uh, after I've been with them for a week, I, I, I get the feeling for most of you, God's input into your lives has been patchy at most over the years no word of argument with that now that isn't to say that isn't an insult to god it's a reflection on the way faith is taught and the way in which the reception of faith is taught Mm. Uh, but i I think we've got to embrace those problems and honor god people are always using that phrase to me well you can go and honor god in your own way i want to honor god by talking about the way things actually happen not how they ought to yeah ought to happen you're an author a speaker you have been involved in running a christian retreat center as well um Mm. Uh, we're going to be talking about your latest book, The Shadow Doctor. Yeah. Just take us back, though, to Adrian Plass as a young man. Were you born mm. into a Christian family? I, I, actually, I was born into a family where the uh, the Irish troubles were reflected fairly strongly. My father was a Catholic. My mother was a, right. uh, a, a, a kind of low-church Protestant. And did that bring some troubles? Oh, yes. No, we had our own little version of the troubles <laughs> weekly, really. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I, I remember thinking, God isn't capable of handling this household, let alone the rest <laughs> of the world. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, th- that was a really odd beginning. And Did that put you off religion? Uh, yeah, it was in Latin. Oh, right. It was an hour of Latin. and There was nothing wrong with it, I suppose, but it was boring. Right. 
Um, and then when I was 16, I went to a, an Anglican youth club looking for girls, I have to say. <laughs> looking for girls, not God. No, absolutely not for God. <laughs> and there were girls there. They had these odd predatory smiles on their faces <laughs> obviously they were praying for me if I'd known that I'd have run a mile but uh, through going there I, I uh, kind of got interested and, and uh, an evangelist came and um, did you know evangelist is an anagram of silage bent <laughs> That is a stunning I, thought. I didn't know that. No, but no, now no, that you pointed out, I'm surprised but, I've never thought of it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But uh, he he was talking about how the thief on the cross, as we all know, asked Jesus to remember him. Mm. And Jesus didn't say, well, it depends on your quiet time or your prayer <laughs> life or whether you're good or whether you're bad or which church you go to. Mm. He just said yes. And I think that instinct to provide people with yes not not in solving problems, but in being yes for them, mm. uh, has stayed with us, certainly with my wife and I, uh, all these years, and it's still what we do. We pray with people a lot. We mm. we we haven't got easy answers, but we, we have got us, and we are us, and we say yes to people about their lives, and I think it's really important. Yeah. That's taken you through various forms of, of ministry and getting involved with churches. I mean, eventually that led you to, to the Scargill house community didn't it what tell us a little bit about that period in your life it was it was interesting i mean people talk about guidance an awful lot i don't think it happens a great deal to be absolutely honest (laughs) um but on this occasion we we sat in our kitchen in sussex and we said to god we'll it was in 2008 i think so we'll we'll go anywhere and do anything we didn't mean it of course <laughs> you never mean it the reservations abound but just, uh, just don't actually answer just this don't prayer. actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um we sort of meant it and i'll tell you what we did do mm. we said we'll cancel all our engagements in 2010 we mm. won't accept any mm. invitations it's your year wow uh, and felt a little insecure after that <laughs> and after that we heard scargill had closed in 2008 mm. And uh, from then on, all I can say is that from then on, I knew we were going to Scargill. Mm. We were going to Scargill. That's where we're going. We're going to Scargill. And it was it was a new council bought it, and we asked, I asked if I could be writer in residence there, uh, and they said yes. And it opened early in 2010. So our year that we had offered was taken. Mm. If we hadn't done that, mm. we'd have missed. Mm. Four or five of the most productive and fascinating mm. years we've ever known. Yeah. So, I mean, not everybody can do that. No. But I, I would recommend people give some proper time, mm. uh, empty some proper time to and, hear what's going on. And I suppose it was a lesson in, in learning to live in a in a community, which... Oh, good heavens, yes. Ah, oh, I tell you... The history of communities, when it's written, is just full of lies. It is hell inhabited by God. That is all I can say. Uh, we went through some terrible times in those mm. early days, and mm. we were with people we loved. Yeah. Well, my goodness knows what it would be like to be with people we hated. Um, but I think because it grew like a tree, mm. we didn't we didn't set out and say it will be like this, 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 and this. We said it won't be like this, 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 and this, mm. uh, which I think was very helpful. Yeah. And actually now it's running really well. We're, we're not associated with, with it very much mm. now, still, still technically community mm. members. Mm. But it's it's kind of ragged at the edges, mm. which Christian living needs to be, I think, to allow the shape to form that God has in mind and not the one that we, we do. And we pay lip service to that, but doing it's tricky and it is it requires determination commitment and an organization i'm sure mm. but at the same time like you say um christian life i guess that it's a shame when it becomes a little bit too pristine or polished it sounds like you're more interested in the, the ragged edge of christianity in that I, way i just think i mean I know, I know this is kind of hackneyed but i don't know what's going on anymore just <laughs> I, I really don't i mean god god is god right, right. he does what he likes yeah and like Paul in when they, he was in prison with um, Silas, you mm. know, if if he'd had a prayer group working for him and he <laughs> kind of tweeted, tweeted them and said, this is what's happening, they'd have said, well, where did you go wrong, Paul? What, you know, what, what have you done that's caught? It, your life happens. Mm. If you want God in it, let him in it. Mm. 
and wait and see what happens and get excited if you like mm. or bored which you do <laughs> um, but <clears throat> don't try and make it happen right uh, and a lot of organizations have failed because they move on there's a bit in the New Testament I can't remember where it is, talks about people um, I can't remember what is going beyond or something going too far yeah. I, you probably know I can't remember <laughs> but that is what happens. You yeah. never know what's going to happen next. Mm, mm. And you have to have good organization, but after that... Yeah. Oh. You're, you're someone who likes to tell funny stories. Yes. Um, do, do you think the church has too often been a bit too humorless in the way it's put things across? I think it's to do with permission, really. Mm. I think that there is a... a a dimension of neurosis about whether God exists or not in the church. Um, and because of that fear, uh, we we worship the scaffolding very often. Um, and what we need to do is to, is to devise something that when the scaffolding goes down, there's something that the house of love and peace and joy is inside. Mm. But if you keep decorating the scaffolding too much through insecurity, but I think laughter is is a great help. I'll tell you quickly, a lady phoned me, mm. and I don't know where she got my number, but she phoned me and said, um, I phoned you because I've, I've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. And I, the, I, the unforgivable sin. Yeah, the unforgivable sin. Right. So I said, oh, well, congratulations. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a pause while she tried to digest this. And she said, um, what is the sin against the Holy Spirit? So I said, well, I can help you there. I know exactly what it is. It's scrumping, <laughs> stealing apples. I said, that, that is the one that the Holy Spirit hates most. There was another long pause, and she fell about laughing. <laughs> she didn't. She hadn't committed any sin against She just mm. wants to be loved. Yeah. And somewhere at the heart of that question was, she was saying, as many people say to us in Mm. times when we pray with them does god love me that is the perennial problem Mm. when will i meet him when will he be the thing that people have promised me for so long Mm. Uh, and i i don't shy away from that anymore i used to i used to have all sorts of clever answers for him i haven't anymore in that sense would you say your christian faith has become more simple as you've gone on (laughs) or more complicated (laughs) Or a bit well, of both. both, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Sim- simple in the sense that I, d- I don't understand anything anymore. <laughs> and in the sense that, as I was saying to someone earlier today, that the mystery is not dark. It's It's got a, like the uh, when the te- Solomon built the temple and the shadows, mm-hmm. the, all the lights went out. And Solomon said, God has told me he'll be in the, in the cloud. There's something in the cloud that is really valuable and um, that kind of put your hand out in the dark and you can just about feel it taken um so it it, it is simple it is complicated mm. whatever anyone says mm. i meet people for whom it's not and i i i think they're wonderful you know yeah people who help others and love god and don't have any problems and that's great but it's not me yeah how much of you is in your new book the shadow doctor would you say well, not as much as the as as the actual <laughs> character in there. Um, the, the Shadow Doctor himself is, mm. I suppose, a kind of point point I would like to be at, mm. where I can not use Christian language mm. in the way that we usually do, but I can go with the flow of the the spirit. Mm. Not not in the sense that I. I, I think the main thing in this book, perhaps I'm trying to say, which I've only just realized, <laughs> is uh, is that you don't need to role-play anything about being a Christian. Right. It, either verbally or in behavior. You don't need to role-play it. You, you have to sometimes control your urges. That's that's another mm, thing. Mm. Or put your prejudices in a box. But, yeah, the main, the main character is, is struggling to... Uh, Meet the flow of the Spirit of God and and help people through that. Right, uh, that's not quite as simple as it sounds. Well, just tell me why. You, I believe you actually had the title of this book in your head before you ever put a word down yes. about it. How, yeah, that's not the normal way that these things happen. Is no, it? it's embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> um, I once wrote a book called An Alien at St Wilfrid's. I, mm. I met a man in a pub who looked a bit like an alien. <laughs> 
and he went to a church called St. Wilfrid's. <laughs> and that, and that, that was, was the it. Of that the was book. the title. Yeah, it really was. I went home and I said to Bridget, I'm going to write a book called An Alien at St. Wilfrid's. And she right. said, what's it about? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> but this was similar, except that I thought it would be fascinating to have a man mm. who who was trying to help people with their shadows. Well, that's something we, we try to do. Shadows being um, the things problems, from the past, the yeah, baggage. Things, the, things that are afflicting yeah. people. Mm. And and um, most of the ones in this book are things that have actually happened to mm. people we know, and mm. I very carefully asked their permission. Mm. Uh, there's a lady in there who is frightened that she will explode, for instance. Right. And... Normally, when people come for ministry, they don't say things no, like that. that's not the usual I, pastoral problem. No, well, with, thank no. God when they talk to us, they tell the truth. Um, and, and so that particular problem really intrigued me. Mm. And I won't tell you what you meant by it. You can read it in the book. Right. But um, um, just, just going, to, going into these situations saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I'll say. I don't know how I'll deal with it, but I'm going to. So yeah, I only had the title, mm. but as the as I wrote the book, I began to realise what it was about, which is a bit strange, mm. really. But it began to grow on me. It sounds like serious subject matter, but it's also very funny. I think there are some funny things in it. Yes, how, how do you yes. do that? How do you kind of take something that's, that's well? Funny? I I think I think they're they're very much very close together, aren't they? Mm. And again, mm. it's a hackneyed thing to say, but um, humour and and tear, laughter and tears. We often call our evenings laughter and tears mm. because laughter opens some kind of door in people and mm. allows them to cry sometimes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... I don't think I will ever... I can't not be humorous yeah. uh, and I can't not be concerned about the darker things. Mm. Uh, there's, there's, there's one line I like in there where the young man, Jack, says, um, you watch those late-night religious programs and... The shadow doctor says, no, I try to avoid pornography. <laughs> um, which you can interpret in any way you like. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, I think some people will know exactly what that means. Yes. And yeah, so that's interesting. Through shorthand, sometimes you can say something. You feel very, very deeply. <laughs> um, but, it's, but it's serious. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, just in terms of the what people you're hoping will get from this, hmm. um, do you feel like people have the opportunity to, in some way, express that part of themselves to people in the way that they're able to talk to the shadow doctor in this book? I, what I hope is that they, they feel a sense of freedom. Mm. That when, when people go for prayer or they go for ministry or whatever you want to call it, they often assemble it before they go in a way that means it will, it will, com, it will conform to yeah. the models that they've yeah. been used to. I hope if they read this, they might think, you know, I really want to talk about the thing that is really hurting me, the thing that sounds so pathetic or mm. so anti-Christian mm. or whatever, mm. that if I say it, I'll be condemned before I start or I'll be rejected. Mm. So I hope that will happen because mm. uh, there's a real need for it. Uh, and once you've done it, it's amazing. Your spine, yeah. you know, depending on who hears it. Yeah. So obviously you don't want to. And the Bible says, "Don't cast your pearls before swine," and your problems are pearls. I mean, they've accreted around irritation and difficulty, and those pearls are very valuable to God. Mm. So when you give them to God and you say, "I'm," I don't know, whatever you are, whatever you've done, especially whatever mm. you've done, mm. men especially, men are men are <laughs> often are harboring memories of terrible things they've right. done mm. or they feel mm. they've done mm. uh, and really deep down can't believe God is that we're going to forgive them. So in some ways it's about being honest with God and yeah, with yourself so. yeah. and, um, and I suppose dropping some of the, the masks and the things that we tend to use to kind of maybe give a picture of ourselves try and persuade ourselves that we're a particular yeah, kind of person. I think so. Like I said, role playing is is really a waste of time mm. because you are what you are. Mm. Uh, and uh, we've often said to people, uh, God is not looking for wonderful Christians; He's looking for obedient pillocks. <laughs> you know, you need <laughs> what He wants is people who will say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm imperfect. I'm yeah. lacking in many ways, mm. but I will go. If you ask me to go, I'll go." Yeah. 
uh, and you are going to have to look after me because I'm weak and mm. I'll probably fail at certain points. And I think then the response of God is, that's fine. Let's do some stuff. Yeah. At what level do you think of, I don't know whether the shadow doctrine in any way represents the kind of thing Jesus was doing mm. in the way he... I guess, spoke to people and I very often went directly to the issue. Mm. You know, the rich young man says, yeah, yeah. comes to him yeah. and says, I've, I've kept all the commandments. Yes, what must right. I now do mm. to have eternal life? And he, yeah. and he pinpoints the problem. Yeah. Um, so I don't know whether, whether at what level is Jesus represented in the book? I, I, th- I think he, uh, the shadow doctrine is obviously on the way to mm, that, mm. but he's, he's not, he's not secure enough in himself right. to feel he is yeah. that wonderful mm. in doing it. Mm. But he's begun to experience it. Yeah. I think the way he puts it at one point is that when you listen to people, um, it's like coming to a roundabout and there are four or five exits and you notice one tiny little one with a little sign on it scribbled on it and you think, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Mm. Uh, so it's, a lot of it's about really genuinely listening as Jesus obviously did, mm. and then coming out with these these uh, cataclysmic comments to people, like the woman at the well, you know, yes, you too right, you <laughs> married, married five times, yeah, um, breaking right into them, but without destroying them, without yeah. Yeah. hurting them, mm. but in such a way that they think here is somebody who really sees into me and mm. wants to help, you know. Mm. I mean, in a sense, it's in a different way. I think this book is bringing out the thing you've you began with with Adri- with the di- you know the sacred mm. diary of Adrian Pass, which is to say, let's break down some of the the barriers we build and some of the mm. silly things, and let's not necessarily take ourselves too seriously. At the same mm. time, let's be honest about who we are and and our failures and everything else. Um, do you feel the church generally is getting better at that? Because I think there has been this problem with the church of saying. Now you're inside. Now you're yeah. a Christian. You yeah. have to be this victorious, overcoming mm. individual with with the, the perfect family, smiley face, mm. uh, who will draw lots of other people because yeah. it all looks so attractive. And the reality is, a lot of people feel like, I don't feel like I'm. They end up feeling like I'm. A, I'm a failure because yes. that I'm not yeah. living up to this this sort of ideal. I, I think that is true. And I, I, like I was saying just now, I mean, um, I, I know God isn't looking for wonderful. Christians mm. looking for people who, who will be obedient. Obedience is the one of the major imperatives in the New Testament. If you want to talk in those terms, well, um, he, he had a few obedient pillocks who followed, he, followed he him, did. didn't he? Jesus, he did. So. They, yes, he, he absolutely did. <laughs> I don't know if the church is better at, at that than they were. Yeah. I I just str- I think you're absolutely right, though. It's it's the sacred diary mm. uh, with different clothes on, yeah. really. Um, but it's it's an attempt on my part to rehabilitate God mm. I mean, I'm sure he's thrilled <laughs> that I'm going to do that uh, to, to, to say to people look don't give up mm. don't stop uh, mm. searching mm. go on looking for God try mm. to trust him mm. stop playing Fisher Price Christian yeah. things and open your minds and your heart when you're with people and give yourself to them and see what happens. Do you think a non-Christian could get something out of this book? Adrian? Oh, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think some of the stories are, are probably they would. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a mm-hmm. story about a man who's being blackmailed and he has the sort. So there's no specifically religious right. uh, 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 component to that story. Yeah. yeah. But it's a problem that he's, yeah. he deals with. And in fact, yeah. afterwards, his new colleague, Jack, says, but was God in that or not? Or mm, is, mm, is there any mm, God in that? Mm, mm. And he can't really answer it because yeah. it's part of the flow. Yeah. So I, I think yeah, I think it, it is, as the chap who wrote the commendation on the front mm. said, it, I think it is oh, an, an engaging... William Paul Young. Yeah, yes, it, Paul is, Young. it is. Author I think of the it is, Shack. It is an engaging book. Yeah. I think it's sort of book that you'll... You'd start and you think, I yeah. think I'd quite like to know what happens next. Yeah. yeah. Great. Can we expect to see a sequel at some point? You jolly well can. Good. Yes. I've, um, <laughs> I've got several ideas, yeah. <laughs> and I've left several mysteries unsolved at the end, which okay. 
Uh, I've really got a solve in the second one. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, we look forward to that. Um, it's available now. Hodder and Stoughton, The Shadow Doctor by Adrian Plass. Um, sounds like some excellent reading. And uh, I hope that, um, yeah, I hope you'll come back and tell us about the, the next part. And thank, oh, I'd love th- to. thank you for continuing to produce books that will help normal Christians. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Justin. It's great to have you on yeah. the profile today. I've been Justin Briley. My guest has been Adrian Plass. And if you want to listen back to this interview, you can go to our website, premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile and don't forget that premier christianity magazine the monthly edition of the magazine brings you brilliant interviews with people like adrian and many other people besides want to find out more premierchristianity.com the profile you're listening to premier christian radio Welcome back to the second half of this week's profile. Uh, a great pleasure to be joined for this half of the programme by Malcolm Geit. He's a poet, theologian and songwriter. He's also chaplain of Girton College in Cambridge. And just a reminder that the profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you want to read more interviews with all kinds of interesting people, do go to our website, premierchristianity.com and you can ask for a free sample copy of the latest magazine there. I'm Justin Briley, the senior editor of the magazine, joined by Malcolm Geit in this section of the programme. Malcolm, thank you for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've been really looking forward to speaking to you because I've seen you on stages and on Twitter and read some of yeah. your poetry as well. Uh, so it's lovely to have you here in person to talk about your, your life and faith journey. Um, we always go back to the beginning on mm-hmm. the profile. So tell us a little bit about growing up because you actually were born and raised for at least part of your life in Africa, weren't you? Yes, that's right. I was I was born in, in Ibadan in Nigeria, um, Back in '57, actually, the, the last years in which Nigeria was still at that time a crown colony, it was just making its transition. My dad was um, a lecturer in classics in Greek and Latin, but also a, a Methodist local preacher, very strongly involved with the local church and ecumenically. And I grew up there, and until um, I was seven, and then had another three years in Zimbabwe, as it was then. It was Rhodesia at that time, and. Um, all that time in Africa, which I, you know, loved as a child, I don't have long coherent memories, but I've isolated vivid glimpses mm. of, uh, of, of what it was like. Um, I particularly, I loved thunderstorms and, um, you know, <laughs> I used to be, uh, Asked to uh, asked to be allowed to run out and dance in the rain, you know. The best thunderstorms I've ever experienced have also been in Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, but every year, um, my dad on leave came back to England to universities uh, to do some work either in Manchester or Cambridge, and he would fly back. Uh, but my mother wouldn't fly, so we used to go back by sea. And oh, I have wow. long and lovely memories of of these 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 long voyages. Um, you know couple of weeks out at sea Goodness. on the way back and then a couple of weeks again the other a, way. A lot of time for reading and yeah. finding ways to amuse yourself but yeah. uh, in, in many ways I believe that that ties into the other aspect of what we're going to be talking about yeah. today which is your latest book Mariner, A Voyage mm. with Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Mm. Uh, it's a book in which you explore the, the famous rhyme of the ancient Mariner uh, and the life of the person who wrote it, mm. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Yeah. Um, we'll come to all that later but I believe it was actually on those sea journeys that your first uh, recollections of being yeah, delivered yes, poetry that's right. by your mother. Uh, I, yeah. I love being on board ship, as we said, and my, but my mother, who had been in in the Rens actually in the war and was just a natural seafaring woman, was also a great lover of poetry and had a sort of inexhaustible fund of wonderful poetry. <laughs> She'd whatever whatever you you saw, you know, if you saw another ship on the horizon, she had a poem about that, and you know, <laughs> all the John Macefield things. I must go down to the sea again, but she would often recite verses from it. So you know. We'd be out at sea and the breeze blowing and she'd go, the fair breeze blew, the white foam <laughs> flew, the furrow followed free, you know. And, um, so uh, I first heard that that sense that language lifts into something special mm. and magical mm. from my mother. And I've always felt that way about yeah. poetry. And in that sense, the the best kind of introduction to poetry, which wasn't sort of a sort of very forced 
um, exactly chore so, yeah. in yeah. an English lesson. It was something fun yes. and, and Poetry exciting. Poetry was always playtime for me, yeah. and, uh, not yeah. work. Yeah. Um, so this was where your, I suppose, your passion for poetry and literature and so on began. Um, how did that go alongside your own faith? You were born, obviously, in a Christian family and had that sort of upbringing. Mm. But I, I believe yeah. things sort of faded away. Yes, I, I, I mean, some people are fortunate that they're able to be, you know, that sort of anima naturalita christiana they just just mm. it goes with them yeah. automatically and they yeah. grow through it and i think that's a blessing i don't think there's any special premium on mm. having mm. either fallen away or had a conversion but such it was for me i um faith was nurtured at home but very gently uh but i left home i, I was sent away to school to boarding school when i was in my early teens at my dad was in Canada at that point and wanted me to have my sort of British education and sense of British identity academically I'm very grateful for that it mm. was a superb experience in that respect but it was also very traumatic and lonely and I didn't like being a boarder and it was yeah it was yeah. Um, a dark time for me in some ways I think I probably had a fairly stormy adolescence anyway uh, and in the midst of all of that, I, I didn't so much let go of my faith as positively throw it overboard. Right. And I tried really to to believe for a long time that there was no ultimate truth, no transcendent meaning, no point or purpose in anything, that really everything in the universe had just sort of happened accidentally mm. and that all the things we valued about being and consciousness were just in a kind of accident. An illusion, time. yeah. Um, uh, which you can maintain for a while because that's kind of quite a cool thing to think as an adolescent. And, you know, it's all grim and meaningless. Um, but uh, although I did jet- jettisoned my faith, I, I obviously needed some sense of, you know, you need something beautiful in your life. And for me, that beautiful thing became poetry. And eventually I came to realise that the kind of experience I had in poetry, in really great poetry, I don't just mean Christian poetry, mm. um, was of such a level and such a depth and so, as it were, alive and trembling with meaning that such a thing could not happen in a meaningless cosmos right. and that meaning had to be the clue to things in mm. the end. Uh, also then, fortunately, when I came up to Cambridge to study literature, uh, of course, you read everything. You know, it's a very thorough course. Yeah. And I was then exposed to really great Christian mm. poetry. And I, I would, would utterly echo C.S. Lewis's own comment in a very similar trajectory uh, to compare you yeah. know, the ridiculous with the sublime. <laughs> um, you know, he said, uh, you know, my ba- my imagination was baptised before I was and the rest of me just took a bit longer to catch up. I was going to say your story does reflect in so many ways the yeah. same one that, that Lewis had. Well, of course, Lewis was a, was a companion in that story. Yeah. I mean, I read the Narnia books yeah. as a child, mm. utterly loved them. Mm. Um, and then, you know, they were still in my mind, even in my kind of atheist and then agnostic days. But of course, in a sense for me, poetry was the new yeah, religion for yeah, a while. Yeah. And who should crop up as, say, for example, the best expositor <laughs> of, of Milton, whom yeah. I now love, because I yeah. read C.S. Lewis's yeah. preface to Paradise Lost. So he became a kind of companion and guide to me as much. Yeah. And, uh, and what, what's a, not so well known about Lewis is that he also tried his hand at poetry himself. Yes, um, he did. Was, was yeah. able to put together some some quite good verse. Himself. Some very good verse. Yeah. In fact, I think unjustly neglected verse. Right. So it was when I was asked to contribute um, to the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis, I I took great pleasure in writing the chapter on Lewis as a poet, yes. and saying I think he's really well. He's of course he's he's remembered in Poets' Corner is, in, yes, in yeah. Westminster Abbey. Um, w- w- what about your own then uh, journey as as a poet? Did, was that some Something that you you were trying from early on is is that something that grew up as you became came to appreciate the poetry? I think you were it reading? was something that that I had in me early on, in the sense that I got it from my mother, and my mother would recite things, and I would recite mm. them. And um, certain poems she recited stayed with me, and I think influenced me both poetically and in a way spiritually. Um, I mean, just as an instance, um, again, this was to do with out being out at sea and the sun setting at sea. My mother used to recite. Um, my mother was brought up in a very mm, Presbyterian, mm, you know, Scots, mm. Calvinist, Presbyterian household. But she was full of this poetry, which is alive with much more universal imagery. Yeah. So I remember the sun setting at sea. Whenever it did, if we were up on deck, ritually, mm. my mother would go, mm. out beyond the sunset, could I but find the way, is a sleepy blue laguna that widens to a bay. And there's the blessed city, or so the sailors say, the golden city of St. Mary. 
you know. And that just, it was beautiful. And it was like, you see this light and there's something beyond mm. this light and there is a city there. And that's what I'm yearning yeah. for. You know, I'll be shipping yeah. sunsetwards and westward ho. So there you are as a, as a student. Yeah. You, you're, you're enthralled with poetry. Now, I don't know, probably a, you, this was in the 60s, 70s yeah. that we're talking 70s, about. 70s, yeah. Um, I mean, most people of, of your era would have been listening to, you know, Led Zeppelin and that yeah. sort of thing. I mean, were you a sort of bit of an oddity with your no, sort well, of your I, poetry? Well, I have to say, I listened to Led Zeppelin as well. Although naturally, of course, what I really listened to was Bob Dylan and Leonard okay, Cohen. Yeah. So I was a complete... Poets themselves. You know, yeah. I listened to Dylan and yeah. Cohen and, and Van Morrison. So all that music was there. And when I really started to try writing poetry myself properly, which was really as a sort of in my late teens and then mm. as an undergraduate, I, I began and had a burst of it. And it was kind of, you know, Bob Dylan meets John Keats <laughs> on a bad <laughs> night. You know, it was sort of a bit all over the place and very lu- luxurious and right. gushy. But, yeah. you know, I, I, but you've got to start somewhere. You've got to start you? somewhere. Yeah. I remember later getting I, I'm very, very uh, fond of and indebted to the late great Irish poet Seamus Heaney. And he's got a wonderful, you know, line to ardent adolescent poems. And he says, don't let the veins bulge on your biro. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of, you know, uh, you can overdo it. But, you know, you have to learn, actually, that there's a beauty in restraint, Mm. that you can gesture towards something that's larger than the line itself. Um, So there's learning the craft. And I became fascinated by the craft. I was a bit of a rebel from that point of view, Mm. because, of course, in the 70s and then later, in the official, if you like, high culture Mm. art poetry world it was all about free form nobody rhymed and it was all about almost willful obscurity and it was also pretty secular so by the time i finally got into my stride and i'd become a christian again (laughs) in my final year as an undergraduate i was like writing a my poetry had faith you know Mm. b it rhymed and had meter (laughs) you know and c it was lucid so basically you were doing everything everyone else wasn't three strikes and you're out you know (laughs) (laughs) but i persisted with it and at what point did a call to ministry ordination and so on go along with that well in a way i also kind of have a have a poet to thank for that Mm. in that um i was i mean after I, I graduated, I was an English teacher for a while. And I always saw myself as, you know, not quite fitting in and a bit of a rebel and mm. had long hair and all of that. <laughs> Still have. Uh, and, um, <laughs> you know, I didn't, insofar as I had any idea of what a vicar was supposed to be, I was probably still haunted by that sort of, you know, have some tea vicar yeah, and a sort sure. of kind of Derek Nimmo curate. So I didn't think I fitted. But I was, as well as teaching, I was doing a part-time PhD and I did it on a poet who also became a Dean of St. Paul's and a great preacher whom I deeply admired, John Donne, at once a great love poet and a great religious poet. And as I was working on Donne, I realised this guy was ordained in the Church of Mm, England. You know, mm. like, there was room in the Church of England. I mean, admittedly, it was in the 17th century. (laughs) But, you know, there was room in the Church of England for a guy like this. And I began to feel more and more that maybe I had this calling and I wasn't quite sure and I tested it. But in the end... And the other person, of course, who came into the frame for me by then was another priest poet, George Herbert. Yes. Another long hair, mm. lute playing, you mm. know. Uh, so, so those guys actually, to some degree, helped me to believe, to trust that the calling might be a real calling. You can be a poet and a pastor yeah. in, in one. Um, interesting stuff. Thank you so much. I'm talking to Malcolm Geit uh, on today's edition of The Profile. Uh, just a reminder that uh, this programme brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm Justin Briley, the senior editor of the mag. Uh, Malcolm, you've written a book called Mariner, A Voyage with Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It's the kind of book that would do serious damage if it was dropped on anyone's head from <laughs> yeah. a large height. It's, it, it, this yeah. is a substantial volume. Um, yeah. I guess, so it's a labour of love. You know? It, it yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. in a sense, this poem that was one of the, your earliest memories yeah. um, out at sea um, has, has obviously developed into this, this very full-blooded look at the life of Coleridge and just unpacking, hopefully in not the way that the you know, hated English teachers well, were exactly. used to you unpack the, the book being dropped from a great height. <laughs> you know, I, I I think poets are not served by by being dropped from a great height on top of the unwilling heads of you know trembling students. I, 
I think this this poetry is much better as a series of illicit mm. discoveries than it is. As and a, I suppose kind of if, you'd rather your book make someone go and read the Mariner oh, again absolutely. Than, than anything. I, I want them yeah. to, to read the poem. And actually, it's all, almost all of the poem is in the book by the time because <laughs> I just quote so yeah. much of it. But I think it might be quite useful to have yeah. a, a I mean, just just for those who aren't necessarily familiar with the, the the rhyme of the ancient Mariner. Just give mm. us a little background to it. What's the basic uh, outline okay. of, of the poem? So this started off. Um, Coleridge and Wordsworth were friends in Somerset that went off for a walk and they had the idea that they'd write a quick sort of schlock horror gothic ballad and sell this it to a magazine. This is in the late 1700s. This is in the late 1700s. This is 1797. Yeah. Yeah. They thought they might get a fiver from a sort of, you know, <laughs> local magazine and they sort of tossed this poem off quickly, a bit of a throwaway, and, mm. and pay for the walking tour that they right. wanted, you yeah. know, with that. But once they started it, Coleridge really got hold of it and realised, wait, there's more here. But the story is a wonderful story which draws on lots of old stories that Coleridge had read in, you know, sea captain's accounts. And, mm. of course, he was a young man at one point in Bristol, probably heard these stories. Mm. He's got sort of bits of the flying Scots and everything. Basically, the story is about a sailor who goes off on a, on a voyage. We're never told what for. And... Uh, they get driven, they go right down to the equator and then they get driven into the South Seas. They get right in the South Atlantic. They get lost in the ice. There's absolutely nothing living. They're all about to freeze to death and be enclosed by the ice. Suddenly this albatross appears. Mystically, magically, this beautiful bird sails around the mast and they love it and they feed it and they hail it as if it had been a Christian soul and then it flies towards this ice block and the ice splits and they steer through. And we're just going, oh, this is nice. And all this is being told to a wedding guest. And suddenly the wedding guest says, God save thee, ancient mariner, from fiends that plague thee thus. Why lookst thou so? And he says, with my crossbow, I shot the albatross. And you suddenly realise, in the middle of everything going Mm. okay and fine, randomly, stupidly, for no apparent reason, he totally screws things up. Mm. Sound familiar? (laughs) You know, we do this, don't we? It's kind of complete mystery. So we're never told why he did it. Mm. And um, eventually a series of horrific things happen. They, They start... They get stuck in the doldrums. They're dying of thirst. That's where the famous famous water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. And then this ghost ship, this spectre ship, appears out of nowhere with only two people on board it. And one is a skeleton, which is death himself. And the other is this really blood-chilling figure where you start off, you think, oh, this is nice because it goes, you know... Her lips were f- were red, her looks were free, her locks were yellow as gold. Sounds pretty good. And then it goes, her skin was white as leprosy. The nightmare life in death is she who thicks man's blood with cold. And they, they, they play dice, these two characters. Goodness. And death wins the crew, so mm. they all die. Mm. <laughs> and um, the nightmare life in death wins the mariner. I see. So he is now condemned to a nightmare life mm. in death. And then you get this really weird thing where the bodies of the crew, they all curse him as they're dying. And then the bodies of the crew rise up. And he's, oh, I'm really, you know... I'm a zombie style. I'm the one yeah. guy on the zombie ship, you know, <laughs> like... Not even the compensatory thought, this is going to make a great movie franchise later. <laughs> For Johnny Depp, yeah. yes. <laughs> but, in fact, it's not the living dead. It's God's mercy, and it's a troop of angels that have come down and inspirited them. And there's a, just before this, there's a turning mm. point where he's had the old albatross, you know, that he shot hung around his neck. Another phrase we have, mm. an albatross around my neck, as a sign of his guilt. Terrible. Instead of the cross, the albatross around my neck was hung. But there comes a point where having tried to pray and been unable to do it, wanting to repent but unable to repent, cursing everything around him. There's a terrible line, which, again, people, particularly PTSD or survivor, you know, a mm. thousand, thousand slimy things lived on, and so did I. You know, you just mm. feel dreadful. Yeah. And then the moon rises, and the moon in the poem is this beautiful vessel of grace. And he looks out again, and for once he forgets himself, and in God's name he blesses the other creatures. He reverses, if you like, what he yes, did when he shot yes. the albatross. The albatross falls off his neck, and he prays. And then rain comes. And then, as it were, this ghastly crew, he begins to get a glimmer of hope that then it's not as bad as it looks. Right. And they gradually sail back. And he he starts to hear these two voices who are, again, like two well, sort of demons, who explain to him in a dream the full truth of what he did and help him to to turn his life around. 
which is turned around through, yeah. and eventually he gets back to the shore. And the extraordinary thing, which I sort of discovered as I was working on the, on the poem in the book and trying to tell Coleridge's life, I mean, Coleridge was only 25 when he wrote it. Yeah. Uh, when he wrote it, everything was fine. You know, it was, it was good, plain sailing, as they say. <laughs> but strangely, after he wrote it, things started to go wrong. <laughs> and he, he himself went through... Very similar Stupid experiences. Actions, tragic yeah. loss, guilt, you know, dealing with the nightmare of addiction, family breakup, a lot of stuff. That so he kind to a lot of, of wrote in, uh, if you like, um, this this form of a poem, yeah. a sort of prophetic, prophetic prophetically poem. almost, what his and, life would, and I would feel then it's become. prophetic, not only of his life, but it's prophetic in a sense for all of us. Mm. That all of us, one way or another on the voyage of life, quite often get into a point where we fall into uh, a kind of state of guilt and alienation and 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 we need something from beyond ourselves yeah. to turn those things around now coleridge was brought up in a christian household and his dad was a vicar in fact you know <laughs> bound to go off and have misadventures <laughs> with your son of a vicar you know? uh, uh, his dad was a vicar in in, in ottery st mary's um, in devon but um he he still had a very deeply Christian imagination at the time that he wrote the poem. Mm. But it was after and through, really, the crises that he subsequently lived that he became to much more deepen his Christian faith and right. it became a very real thing for him. And he became, in my opinion, you know, in his later writing, a great, a great theologian. Because The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, I've never really thought of it as Christian poetry, mm. per se. Yeah. Uh, but there are references, obviously, oh, there are in lots there. Of Christian references Even if it's in not it. very yeah. blatant in that And way. in fact... Um, there's a sense in which uh, the the albatross symbolically is a sort of redemptive figure, a Christ figure, a Christ figure. Mm. We're told we're told later that the bird that he shot loved him, right? And um, that that um, and some of the illustrators of it themselves, mm. are, you know, Christians have have shown that you know, in the great Welsh poet painter David Jones illustrated it, and um, he, he has a very Christ like. But I tell you who co totally got, yeah that it was a Christian poem, and maybe borrowed from Coleridge <laughs> yes. the idea that you could have a Christ figure in a least expected way, and that is C.S. Lewis. Mm. And C.S. Lewis's wonderful little tribute to The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is patterned into The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh -huh. which, of course, another phrase from the Mariner, mm. as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. <laughs> well, of course, Dawn Treader starts That's, with a painted yes, ship upon a painted ocean. Clever, yeah. Then you remember, I don't know if you know that, that book, but they're sailing towards a dark island, and where dreams come true, but That's they turn right. out to be nightmares. Mm. And they find, guess what, a lost mariner. Ah. And they pull him on board the ship, and then they realise they can't get out of the darkness. And they're all having their worst nightmares happen. I remember this And part, Lucy's yes. up on the fighting top, yeah. and she says, Aslan, Aslan, if ever you loved us, help us now. And then she sees this beam of light, and she looks along the beam, and she sees, at first she thinks it's a cross. You have to say, Coleridge always rhymes albatross yeah, and cross. Right. Yeah. Hint, hint. Yeah. yeah. So, and then she realizes it's an albatross. It's an albatross. And an albatross <laughs> flies down to them, and it circles three times around the mast, which is exactly what's yeah. in the poem, and it guides them out. But just as it's circling around the last time, Lucy says the albatross flies towards her and says, Courage, dear heart. And she recognises it as Aslan's as Aslan, voice. In a different form. Now, yeah. in all of the Narnia chronicles, mm. Aslan is either a lion or a lamb. Yes. Two deeply biblical yes. images. But just this once, and I think it's... it's <laughs> He's doffing Lewis, his cap, doffing to, his cap to the great master yeah. Coleridge. It's an albatross. How, that is such a fascinating detail that... Now that you mention it, I remember the part of the story in the Dawn Treader, and suddenly, oh, it all connects. Yeah, wow, and there's amazing. lots of phrases. I mean, you could go yeah. right into it. There's lots of I, phrases. I mean, it, and, yeah. and it, it, it is a poem that has resonated in popular culture. I think yeah. even even bands like Fleetwood Mac and Iron Maiden have used yeah, it in, yeah. in song lyrics and that sort of thing. Though maybe people yeah. haven't fully appreciated yeah. how, how it did reflect his life. That, for me, is yeah. the most interesting thing that, that you've drawn out here. I mean, where did that end up for he obviously he i believe he he kind of became addicted to opiates yeah um, that that's was right pretty so, common affliction so of... um he certainly lived through the nightmare phase of the poem mm. uh the nightmare life in death yeah. if you like and he, he did have literally have nightmares of the sort of a kind of evil figure you know clawing at his eyes and things but um like the it's extraordinary how similar it was i mean the um in the poem 
It's the rise of the moon, and it's something beautiful and beneficent and gracious and blessing. The way moonlight allows you to reimagine or see mm. things in a new way. It's a moonrise which actually pre prefaces, if you like, the moment that grace comes to the mariner. Then you get the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and you mm. get flames of fire mm. in the air. It's, it's full, <laughs> full Pentecostal spiritual thing. Now, in Coleridge's case, it's exactly the same. His absolute zero point, you know, perhaps not the very worst, but one of the darkest times and places... Close to rock bottom. ...was out in Malta, where he'd gone to try and have a complete cure and mend mm. a broken heart and deal with the addiction, and none of that was working. And he didn't sleep but he used to watch the moon rise and there's a wonderful note in one of his notebooks where he says when i see yonder moon dim glimmering through the dewy window pane i seem to feel that it's telling me something that it's a word it's a word of some language from beyond and from within and then he suddenly says in the note he says it is logos <laughs> Now, logos, of course, is, you know, the mm. Greek word for the word. Yeah. And arche and hologos, in the beginning, was the word. And from there, he seems to be recovering his faith. Right. And um, in the poem, there's a bit where the, the, the mariner is so suffering, he wants to die. And he says for seven days and nights, he tried to die, but he couldn't. Unbelievably. I mean, this is extraordinary. Yeah. When Coleridge got back from Malta and still couldn't get his life together, he, had, he knew there was some hope somewhere, but he didn't know how to make it his. And he he ended up taking, possibly deliberately, once no, a kind of really bad overdose and staggered mm. out from where he'd been staying to a pub in uh, in outside Bath called the Greyhound, and I think intent, intended and expected to die. Yeah. He didn't. He struggled, and he had in that place an extraordinary conversion experience. Really, a real rededication of his life to the Logos to Christ, and right. he realised it had all been head knowledge. It needed to be in the heart. Mm. Later, he said it was an experience of crucifixion, death, descent into hell and resurrection. And um, and then he was kind of rescued. Somebody came to help right. him. He more or less, he and a doctor called Dr. Gilman pretty much invented rehab between the two <laughs> <Wow>. of them. <laughs> really, really did. Yeah, they worked yeah, out, you've yeah. got to stay there, you know, you've got to have yeah, somebody else yeah, do the doses. Yeah. And he did this heroic thing. I mean, every act of recovery is, you know, is both an act of mm, grace mm. on God's part, but also of heroism on yeah, the part of, yeah, you know, the person yeah. who's allowing that change to happen in their lives. And he, he went through all of that. And in the end of the poem... The mariner meets, is rescued by a pilot in a boat, meets a hermit, and then becomes a kind of person whose story changes lives. And if you think of the guy he stayed with as being like the pilot's boat, rescuing him when his ship went down, and you think of how he became, used to call him the sage of Highgate. Yeah. He lived the last, you know, sort of 15 years of his life in Highgate uh, as a great and profound and increasingly influential guide and teacher of the young extraordinary story thank you for sharing it with us and thank you for sharing your story as well in the thank process you. malcolm um it's been really lovely to chat through it on the profile today uh, just a reminder that uh, malcolm geit's book mariner a voyage with samuel taylor coleridge is available now and whether or not you're into poetry i think you'll find this a fascinating account of the the life and times of samuel taylor coleridge and how they were reflected so presciently in his most famous work the rhyme of the ancient mariner available from hodder and stoughton and uh, don't forget that you can listen back to today's programme if you go online to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. Uh, for the moment, Malcolm Guy, thank you very much for joining me on today's show. Thank you. You've been listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. And again, if you want more interviews with all kinds of people in all walks of life, you can find them in Premier Christianity magazine. Go online to premierchristianity.com. Uh, right now, time to hand over to Dave Rose with a little look back at the best bits from the past week here on Premier Christian Radio. <laughs> 